What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Ranching Reboot, the podcast that reboots your thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people behind them. Today, we have the immense pleasure of hosting a true pioneer in the regenerative agricultural movement, Del Fike. Del is the co-founder of the Graze Master Group and owner of Fike Cattle Company, Graze Master Genetics, where he has developed a unique trademark breed of composite cattle, the Graze Master. With over 35 years of experience in agriculture and cattle raising, Dell has always been driven by a passion for transforming society from the soil up. He has spent the last several years transitioning his farming operation to a more holistic, sensible, and profitable approach that blends modern practices with historical concepts and philosophies. Under Dell's guidance, commodity-driven croplands have been transformed back into native pastures, and a mob-grazing approach to cattle raising has been adopted. His expertise in cattle genetics and regenerative practices has led to a 99% success rate in improving the farming businesses of hundreds of clients across the nation and internationally. Dell's diverse background also includes managing a medical clinic in Lincoln, Nebraska, and holding various leadership positions in agriculture associations and businesses. Today, we're excited to dive deep into Dell's journey, explore the Graze Master breed, and learn how he has successfully implemented regenerative practices to create a more sustainable and profitable agricultural operation. So right after the ads, we'll be back with Del Fike. Today's episode is brought to you by Audubon Conservation Ranching and the Audubon Certified Bird-Friendly Seal, the new standard in connecting consumers to conservation. Once a ranch is certified as bird-friendly, a list that now includes yours truly, the Alexander Ranch, home of the Ranching Reboot podcast, beef and bison products can carry the Audubon Certified Bird-Friendly Seal, which lets consumers know their purchases originated on lands managed for biodiversity and birds. Why birds? Because birds like the lesser prairie chicken and quail that I focus on are arguably the best indicators that your regenerative ranching practices have taken flight and are helping the entire ecosystem. If you're interested in joining me and Autobahn in working at the intersection of land, food, and wildlife, learn more at autobahn.org backslash ranching. Hey there, Ranching Reboot listeners. Do you want to support our mission of promoting regenerative agriculture and telling the stories of those who are changing the food system for the better? then consider joining our Patreon community and becoming a patron today. By becoming a patron, you'll get access to exclusive bonus content, merch rewards, and more. Your support will help us continue to bring you fresh stories from some of today's most innovative and progressive farmers, ranchers, and other producers of food. And don't forget to join our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans, discuss current events and past podcast episodes, and get exclusive updates on what we're working on behind the scenes. Our Discord community is the perfect place to share your thoughts and ideas, get feedback on your ranching projects, and learn from other experts in the field. Whether you're a rancher, farmer, or just someone who cares about where your food comes from, you'll find a welcoming community of like-minded individuals on our Discord server. So join our Patreon community and our Discord server today, and let's keep rebooting your thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that operate them. Ranching Reboot is your favorite regenerative ag podcast, and we can't wait to continue bringing you valuable content with your support. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Well, guys, I think we got a special treat for you this week. I am joined by Del Fike, the owner of Fike Cattle Company and uh, co-founder of the Graze Master Group. So, Del, welcome to Ranching Reboot. How are you this morning, sir? I'm great, Brian. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Um, would you mind going outside and shutting the front door because the north wind just started to blow about 35 miles an hour a few minutes ago? I mean, that'd be... I, I would love to do that. Okay. Uh, so why don't, why don't you start us off here and tell us a little bit about where you're at and uh, about what your operation looks like. So our operation is in southeast Nebraska in the rolling hills. Uh, we're four miles from the aquifer. We have very little groundwater where we're at. Um, we're heavy clay soils that Everyone said when we started our soil health journey, even way back in 1999, um, and then, you know, really ramping it up in the last 12 years, they said, you know, you're never going to get water to infiltrate that, and you're not going to, they, they told me everything that we couldn't do and nothing that we could do. So our operations, um, it's a small operation now, we we went from several thousand acres of farm ground uh, back in, oh, I think about 2000, 1999, I had a series of back surgeries and it kind of changed my whole uh, direction. And I really think it was a, it was a blessing from God because even though we had started a no-till on this operation in the late eighties, um, we were still doing a lot of things wrong. And so th this operation now is um, we developed our own breed of cattle. We call them the Graze Master that works, you know, very well where we're at. We've, we've designed everything um, from, from the soil health up, healthy soil, healthy family, healthy community, healthy food system. And I, I certainly wasn't on that, that, bandwagon or on that mentality years ago just like a lot of people that you and i get to talk to so um you know our operation uh we have a small meat company nearly all of our all of our cattle go into that now we sell locally which we're we're ideally located 14 miles from lincoln nebraska and 70 miles from omaha so our our customers are really close. They like to come out to see what we're doing, things like that. But um, we also, this operation also kind of uh, sparked another idea of really helping people. Um, and that was the the origin of the Graze Master Group that Carrie Hofsteiner and I uh, co-founded a few years ago. And we really did that on the genesis of when we were changing on this operation, everyone told us we should do something different. Everyone told us this or that, but there were no resources and no, no one really gave a damn what we were trying to do. And so all we wanted to do with the Graze Master Group is, hey, if we can build a, a breed of cattle that works any place with some tweaks, why can't we build a group of people in a very community-oriented way, like what used to be every place, and have that as a resource for people to call these guys. We don't really sell anything. You know, we, these guys can, they can call the, the people in our group and ask them about, you know, farm and ranch finances or like ward labs with, you know, soil health stuff. 
Um, we're also a partner with Agoro Carbon Group. Um, we've got tons of people in this that that all want to make lives better and the soil better. Sorry, that was a very long answer to a very short question. Uh, long answers are fine. That, that, that's a, it's totally okay. Um, you said you had a lot of acres and you had to downsize and you mentioned some some back trouble then. Yep. So maybe maybe kind of expand on that a little bit and talk a little bit about where you were in 1999 and what the farm looked like versus what it looks like now and why you've made that kind of transition. Sure. Um, my, my cousin and I, Greg Egerling, were farming um, all over the country, several different counties, all dry land, um, not anything you know, not any super large fields, but a lot of fields and a lot of, um, I think we had a lot of opportunity to lose a lot of money with, with what we were doing. And, um, and ironically, when we thought we were losing money, it was about the same time that um, I started to have all these back problems. The, the bankers weren't saying get out there, they were saying just get bigger, something, something to work out, you know, and it's like, well, I, you know, I was told if I if I go back and set in a tractor for a prolonged period of time, I'm going to be paralyzed by the time I was 40. And I didn't really want that. That didn't sound that great to me. Doesn't sound like fun at all. No. So I, you know, the operation, like I said, we were no telling we were doing a lot of things, right? We were raising a lot of different crops. We still had the cow herd and stuff like that. But us, us too, like I, I, I compare you know, the, the farmer and ranchers, you know, suffer from the Stockholm syndrome. We become friends with our captors and we were really that way too. You know, everyone was telling us we're doing a great job. Keep buying this. It's going to be better. You're doing a great job with the soil, you know, even though we hadn't seen our families much because we were farming so much. I mean, none of it made sense. So I had never got the chance to go to college. Um, my dad had heart problems when I was a senior in high school. So I had to come back and just get rolling. And so I got to go through, um, got to go, go to college a little later in life. And I first went through a, a radiology program. And then before that was done, my back blew out again. I could not position patients. So um, life changes again. And so I, I went with, uh, I always like numbers. Oh, this was kind of an insurance weirdo, things like that. So I got into the coding and billing side, reimbursement, cr credentialing, you know, companies and hospitals. Uh, ended up managing a medical clinic in Lincoln, Nebraska for about four and a half years. And I say, I, I talk a lot about that time in my life because it was a, the it was the eye opener for me. Um, we were on the north side of Lincoln. Half of our patients were rural, half were in the city. All my front staff group at the front desk were all farm wives and they would come back to my office and they're like, we are so sick of people bashing the farmer. All they do is bash the farmer. I'm like, well, what are they saying? They're probably right. And well, you know, we're doing this, we're protectionists, we're all this. And my, my father was still alive then. And I would talk to him every day that my, their place, their house is on this, this same farm. And, um, you know, I was telling my dad about that and he's like, well, you know, maybe it's time we are a little bit more, you know, open-minded or maybe they do have some ideas. Let's at least listen to them. Let's open the door if they want to come out. And that's kind of when the meat business really got a small start, but it was having these people come out 
and listening to what what they had uh you know they weren't that off base they might there yes of course there's was extremists like there is in on the ag side industrials everything right but a lot of them really had a pretty good idea that hey we could do better on our food you know we'd like to see where our food comes from um you know what why are we pouring all this stuff on on our food why are we doing this to the soil why are we spending all this time away from family and it it really opened my eyes and opened those doors to people starting to come out and see what we were doing and in a lot of ways our meat company developed under the direction of people that were just coming out to visit what they wanted so at first we we were all they were always on forage, but they were still getting some Milo. And, and most people didn't care about that. It was an all natural deal. It wasn't a GMO. Um, but the whole deal was when they saw those animals grazing and not in a confined deal, they didn't care if they were hundred percent grass fed or not. Now our, our operation has went to hundred percent forage, you know, for the last several years. And that's where the graze masters worked really well. So with all that being said, we really took that outside perspective with our our city cousins if you will and and listened to them and we didn't make any decision that was crazy if someone you know threw something crazy out we weren't going to do just anything but definitely that was our kind of our our sounding board or that idea group to help us figure out why in the hell were we being so protective why 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 weren't we showing people what we were doing? You know, why weren't we engaging with our neighbors anymore? And, you know, why couldn't that equate to healthier people and, and healthier communities again? What, what sort of right to farm laws does Nebraska have? I know. I, okay. And maybe, maybe I shouldn't even open that can of worms. And I guess what I'm, what I'm kind of asking is, or what I'm saying is, I feel like a lot of those right to farm laws that got passed, I don't know, when was that? That was late 90s, early 2000s, right? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we were sold those right to farm as, well, we want to protect your right to do what you want to do on your land and raise raise livestock how you want to raise livestock. And I get that. Like, you know, I, I don't want anybody coming down trying to tell me how to graze my cows. But on the other hand, there's nobody that can, since there's nobody that can tell me how to raise my cows on my pasture, there's nobody that can go into a CAFO and tell them they're doing it wrong. There's nobody that can go to a commodity farmer that's got fallow fields for six months and soil and wind erosion on these terrible 35 mile an hour wind days. There's nobody that can go there and tell them they're doing it wrong. And even more to the point, like a lot of those laws, uh, you know, the, the right to farm laws, they were also kind of designed quote to protect the farmer quote. And what that is, is it's protecting CAFOs from having animal rights activists come in and take pictures and videos and show them all over the universe. That's what that's really protecting. And I I think it was that lack of transparency that people are trying to get back to. Mm -hmm. So the, if, if all that would have been done, and I guarantee you and I are on the exact same page with this, 
if all that would have been done out of the goodness of people's hearts and community building and, and keeping families on farms and ranches would have been great. It was, it was done by a lot of protectionist people protecting investments in those types of places that they didn't want to see that money leaving. So follow the money. And, you know, I, I get on this all the time, you know, people, people tend to really dig in their heels. When you talk about change, if they're doing things that I'm not, I'm not just talking methods, I'm talking, are they doing things morally and ethically right? So when you start bringing in, hey, you can change this. If you change one little thing, and I thought about this a lot in the last two weeks, a lot of people don't want to change because it kind of breaks the whole, the whole system is, is really teetering on a lot of things that, that aren't quite right. If it's, if it's crop insurance subsidies, if they're farming for that game, if they're doing all this different stuff, when you take away all the crutches, you know, you become 100% legit. It's do or die. And a lot of people are, are those, those systems, I'm not saying they're corrupt, but they're really interlocked with a lot of people making a lot of money off of them that are guaranteeing that they're going to continue to make a lot of money if they stay with them. So it has nothing to do with, very little to do with welfare. Because if it was welfare, we wouldn't, probably wouldn't have big feedlots and stuff anyway okay it, it would be and, and a lot of those things are going to go away you know people can they can fight it all they want to the political system or with big money or whatever but you know the public's coming to to tell us they want to see you know like what's behind you in your picture they want to see that because that equates to healthy that equates to wow that's that soil looks good you know the the, the stockpiled grass looks good those animals look healthy and happy and people will say you know the, the pictures of a bunch of cattle lined up in a feedlot eating out of a bunk how happy or content they look well hell they don't have any other choice but to to be happy and content with that well the, you know a meth addict or a coke addict they're pretty happy when they're getting their fix and to me there's not a whole lot of difference between a highly addictive drug and corn when we're talking about cattle we're all, the addiction, the addiction to the vanity and the addiction to the perception drives agriculture more than anything. Okay, you know, we consult with a lot of a lot of places, and when when you tell them they don't need six new John Deere tractors for their operation, they need to go to no till and they need to do all this, and maybe they only need two. They're like, what are my neighbors going to think? I'm like, you don't really talk to your neighbor anyway. Come on. You know, that, your neighbor would cut your throat in order to oh. piece a piece of ground up from under you anyway. Why do you care yep. about that guy? Yep. But that's the perception that still reigns um, at the highest level. I mean, these people run each other off the road. They don't wave each other, you know, all that. But but like you said, if they could go after a piece of ground, I mean, it's, it's a bloodbath. So we... And my grandfather, Adolf Fike, was he was a, a naturalist, and that's who I really have been channeling through this whole journey. And and a lot of people have heard this quote. It's, 
talked about all over the country. My grandfather said the day the horses left and the tractor came was the day we replaced community with competition. No longer did we need everyone helping, threshing crew or whatever. And I'm not saying I want to be farming and ranching just with horses, whatever. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we lost the connection to community. We lost the connection to the soil. When we mechanized, it was easier. All of a sudden you weren't, you weren't working with, you know, your cousin Frank. You were looking across the fence going, I got a little bit bigger Ferguson tractor or Ford tractor than he does. I could get that ground. Then, then we talk about the whole, you know, we think about Earl Butts and how that changed the whole dichotomy of, of agriculture, get big, get out, farm fence row to fence row, take on debt, we have to feed the world. While that guy sat on every major ag board pulling in huge salaries and just wrecked, just absolutely finished off agriculture in the communities. And I'm old enough, I got to see the vibrancy of those communities. I got to see them all being boarded up. And all I want to do is, is see a few more places open up on Main Street. And I'll be pretty damn happy. It's kind of heartbreaking driving through some towns that, you know, I'm in, I'm, I'm in my mid-40s. I've been here most of my whole life. And it's sad driving through towns that have lost half their population in the last 35 odd years since I've been able, been old enough to pay attention. And, you know, there's empty storefronts all over town that used to be full of businesses. And now we've got a dollar general, a family dollar and a Dylan's. And then, you know, there's a Walmart in the next town over. Well, it's for a while. I think we just kind of, we didn't pay attention, but now we can kind of see, well, that's where all of our, that's where main street went. That's 100% where main street went. And their argument that, Oh, you know, a little bit of competition will help everybody. No, that's not right. That's not right. I mean, you get a Lowe's 30 miles away, your hometown hardware store is going to have trouble. You get, you know, you get a Walmart, you get a Dillon's, you get a Kroger in town. Your small town grocery store is going to suffer. You get a dollar general and a family dollar and they're selling groceries. Kiss your grocery store. Goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. It's sad. Yep. They're just indicators of what went wrong. You know, when, when things like that start showing up, um, it's like my Texas friends, you know, their, their economic indicators, if the dairy queen can still stay in business when the dairy queen leaves, then it's like, Holy shit. I, Oh my gosh, we got to do something. Now the dairy queen left, even if the whole whole town is, is boarded up, the dairy queen is the economic indicator that we're still in business. And, when we think about that, but then all these other things show up that are symptoms to how that's changed. And so that's, you know, guys like you and I are just trying to, trying to breathe some life in that. Uh, you know, I, my dad told me before, before he passed away, he said, you've really made it. And I'm like, well, how do you, how do you think, you know, why, why do you think that? And he's like, well, you can tell people to go to hell and they look forward to the ride. And so I'm really a firm believer in kicking them in the butt and giving them a hug, but we're in this together. And we got to figure this out. We don't have as many harvests left. We don't have as many years left as, as these so-called experts are saying, because 
guys like you and I are out there every day and we're seeing how fast, you know, the soil and the water is leaving. Uh, and you're referring to, I think it was probably, let's just say it was five years ago. Now they said we had like 60 harvests left. So 55 ish. And it's really hard to argue with that. You know, when I can drive down the road and on a half an inch rain, there's an erosion ditch six inches deep and a hundred yards long through somebody's field or, you know, a, a day days like we've had the last two days. So uh, we're recording this like right in the middle of March and we just had 25 miles an hour south wind yesterday. So that blew all of West Texas and the Texas panhandle into the sky. And now we've got the Dell left the front door open. So we've got like 35 mile an hour north wind blowing all of western kansas and western nebraska back on top of me i can that just before i came down here to the office to record this i was up looking out my my kitchen window which looks west and you just kind of stand back and look out it's just all brown but if you get close to it to where you can look up there's actually there's like a layer of brown that's probably up to 500 or 800 feet in the sky and above that's blue sky and a couple clouds but under that is just like this gross brown dust and i guess i can circle that back you know that's that's another one of those things that we're just overlooking you know uh soil and water erosion uh i guess i'll back up a little back up again america's number one agricultural export is not corn it is not soybeans it is not alfalfa it's dirt it's sediment that has run off the field and run down through our waterways and ends up either in either ends up in the Pacific or either ends up in the Atlantic. And just that, you know, it, like I think it's your average farm loses five tons of topsoil per acre per year. Okay. That's the thickness of a sheet of paper on an acre. Big deal. Who cares about that? Well, Mr. Farmer, go try to replace that topsoil. I'll be happy to sell it to you. I know where there's a quarry. You can go get topsoil all day for $10 a ton. A belly dump, a belly dump semi can hold like 25 tons. So now you got $250 worth of dirt in there, plus trucking, plus getting it where you want it, plus spreading it out. I don't think that there is a farm on planet Earth that if they had to pay to replace the soil that washed off or blew off every year, I don't think there's a farm on planet earth that would still be in business. I guarantee not. And that's just like, you know, my, my experience or, you know, I've been, I've been blessed to talk to people and work with people all across the country. And I remember years ago talking to a, a grandson and his grandfather in Ohio. And he's the grandson said, yeah, we don't really need, need any of your advice on soil health. We have 30 foot of topsoil. The grandfather was leaning against the pickup. He had a walking stick, bib overalls, put his head down, and he said, but when I was a kid, we had 60. We had 60 foot of topsoil when he was a kid. In 50 years, they got that much left or that much is gone. So we can't be so arrogant and prideful that, hey, what we have is here to stay because you hit the nail on the head. We are exporting not only that soil via the wind erosion, water erosion, all that. We're exporting the nutrients out of that soil with these commodity crops that don't even make it into the food system or you can't even eat. 
Well, we're not just exporting sediment down the creek. It's, you know, it, it's also some of the residual herbicide and pesticide sure. fertilizer load. That's why, well, I guess that's why kind of up towards your part of the world and, you know, maybe off over into Iowa, they've had problems with nitrates in the water. You can't, if your dog drinks the water in the Raccoon River in Iowa, they die. That's how much stuff is in that river. Okay. I mean, I, I've never heard of the Raccoon River, but I assume it's, you know, it's probably a little bit more of a river than what we call a river around here. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's not the biggest one, but certainly carries a lot of those, a lot of that water down to the, you know, into the Gulf in four or five years ago, I, I went with the Pawnee Indians to the Joaquin Valley in Mexico on a seed trading mission, flew over on Thanksgiving day, flew over the Gulf of Mexico. And I absolutely could not stand looking down anymore and wanted to come home and wring everyone's neck for how big of a dead spot that was that we created with our arrogance and our excess in everything. Um, you know, that all ends up there. Right. But then when you take it, you know, it's easy to see it from the 30,000 foot view. Right. But when you take it back down to the farm scale and, and try to talk to that producer about making a change in order to mitigate some of these issues, it always seems like there's just a litany of excuses or reasons why that practice has to be done and it all comes back down to you can't blow your you can't blow the farm average yield average and you've got payments to make because there's people that you've got credit with and mm -hmm. you can't afford you can't afford to take maybe a five percent hit in income because your your operating ratios are that tight and you know they'll have all kinds of excuses well granddad did it this way if i don't plow you know, if I don't plow at this time and, you know, powderize the soil, I'll have weed problems. Well, I've got to spray because of this weed. And, you know, it always seems like there's an excuse for everything. And it, it almost feels like there's, there's never any will to change, to, to stop doing practices or to do less work in managing the land. So they're scared of not working as much. So you can never lead a change in the operation of, hey, if you do this, you're going to have a lot of extra time on your hands because that just blows their mind. They don't know what to do. They've never, they don't have hobbies. They don't have anything. So there's, there's two, maybe three ways why people change. Um, some change because it's in their heart. Some change because they're being progressive, you know, um, to go to a more soil health type way or low input deal. But Third thing, probably the biggest group is you have to change. So when your back's against the wall and we, we deal with guys like that, we deal with all those types of people. When the bank's going to shut you down, you're going to try anything. If the bank's going to give you one more year, why wouldn't you want to save a ton of money? Why wouldn't you want to get rid of a bunch of equipment that you didn't really need? Why would you not want to, um, stop spending all that money on some inputs that aren't doing any good, or maybe change your change what kind of inputs go to more natural way. They're, the the whole the biggest hurdle is between their ears, and for years I was that way too. And um, just like on the cow side, 
there are so many ways to make more money and have healthier cattle and healthier soil than than what anyone's doing. I mean, my gosh, we we saved with regenerative agriculture. It's it's the it's the savings as much as the money you're going to make down the road. And I like the savings part because on money you save versus money you make, you don't pay income tax. So you save that money, you know, and, and all of a sudden you're, you're thinking entirely different. Every one of my neighbors within five, probably four or five miles around me, this is, this is the funny part. They are all doing something regenerative, but if you term it like that to them, if you say, Hey, that's a, you know, you're starting to do some regenerative stuff. Oh no, no. I just decided this is, I'm going to, I was going to change, you know, they, they don't want to be part of that, that, that hippie tree hugging, whatever the, the hell we're, we're, we're coined as, you know? And so it's, it almost goes back to when I was managing that clinic and I had a lot of docs who sometimes are a bit arrogant. I could bring up an idea and they would shut it down. Three weeks later, one of them would come up to me and say, Hey, I got an idea. It was the exact thing that I had said. So in this whole ag deal, you really got to let it be their idea and just give them that information that you think might stick. Don't overload them. Give them one thing. One thing will change their whole course on what they're doing. And I used to overload people. I'm like, we can do this, 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 and this. No, it's now it's like, you know, if you biocarpeted or bale grazed, you wouldn't have to haul so much manure, blah, blah, blah. We're going to build that soil in those spots. And you hate feeding cows all winter. This would make it easier. Start with something like that. Cut the pasture in half with some poly wire and plastic posts, just in half. Don't move cows twice a day. Just cut it in half. And they're like, oh, man, we... I tell you, we ran a lot more cows or the cows were on that grass longer. Um, we can put a few more on there next year. We're going to tighten it up even more. We're going to cut it in three. But it's got to be their idea and it's got to be baby steps because I am a, I, I am so guilty of trying to do too much with people that, that were so trapped, like I say, in the Stockholm Syndrome type deal. I mean, they're scared to death. Just like you said, they are scared to make that change. I appreciate that you said Stockholm syndrome and I like it. it. It resonates. And I've never really thought about that before in the context of ag, but it makes sense because the people, you know, the people that are kind of stuck in that paradigm, it's like, uh, Stephen King book misery. Mm-hmm. Yep. The author gets stuck out there in, yep. in the world in a great movie, but and, in a movie, yeah. And one of his big fans, one of his biggest fans is like, you're going to write this book for me. So she kidnaps him. And I think in the, in the book, it's his knees. She breaks. And in the movie, it's her, it's the guy's ankles. Still the same thing. It's like, Hey, I'm trying to help you. I'm going to break your knees. So you have to stay here and write this book for me. And I, I, I feel like a lot of folks in ag, big commodity farmers, feedlot types, they have a Stockholm syndrome relationship with Cygena, with Merck, with Monsanto, with Bayer, with John Deere. Like, I, I really think that there's there's some abusive relationships that, that that people don't know they're in with these big companies that are 
have a very much vested interest in not transitioning towards regenerative ag and in keeping things just the way they are. Look, there, it, it's back to you know the policies on on some of these livestock handling deals. There's people that are making so much money off of these, you know, maybe the top ten percent or the largest deals or whatever, um, that are still getting some rewards for being so wrapped up in that deal. Where everyone else, because you know they can't buy in volume, they don't get a free cruise, they don't get all this stuff. You know, they're just they're they are that I mean that that metaphor, that analogy of that misery deal, they are just stuck right there getting the crap beat out of them every day. And they're kind of and they're thanking those those people for it. Thank you for still letting me be a part of this, even though it it, it is abusive. It is not just not just financially, it's abusive to the whole the whole mental part. But then what does it do to the family? You know, the family is the one that, you know, the, the kids don't know, don't know dad because he's he's running all over the country because the bank said you got to get bigger or the company said if you get bigger, you know, you're going you're gonna to get a better price or you're going to do all this. And, you know, we've, we've lost the whole relationship component in in the the living that used to be i think at least much better it was probably never perfect but you know it was it was a different deal um people at least knew each other they at least talked families communicated i i run on to places where the only time that the dad grandpa and grandson have ever sat at the same table including holidays are when i show up because there's no communication and we got a communication problem and they will sell out a family member to make a big corporation happy. And that's crazy. I was, so you hit the nail on the head. I can't remember who I was talking to yesterday. But I, was, I was in the truck going somewhere and um, was talking to a friend and the conversation came up. Uh, crap, forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> it was anyway. We've lost, you know, lost the relationship component. And I like what you said, you know, about your dad's quote, the day the horse left and the tractor came, the community spirit was gone and replaced with competition. And I think that's right. You know, there's not a whole lot of difference between 16 and 18 horses or 16 and 20, but there's a big difference between a 50 and a 75 horsepower tractor and the size of tool you can mm -hmm. pull. And when everything was powered by, you know, horses and oxen, there there's just a limit to the size of tool you can pull and how many acres you can cover a day. And, you know, losing, losing a lot of that community aspect. I don't know how to bring that back, but I think the communities need to be more centered around food and the cooperation, cooperation and, and community around food. I think we need to, base level start thinking about agriculture as a food system again and many of them don't you, you think about feed or fuel and you know i guarantee you if those went away everyone would run cows on grass hogs on different forage all that stuff you know none of that was sustainable so back to what you were saying of my grandfather's quote with all that but it 
people will tell me so so one one indicator i use a lot is if if an operation is getting bigger they're probably not profitable and they're probably not doing a lot of things right so of my 500 acres or less that we have left here i've got four and a half acres that what i consider i've optimized move the uh, you know the organic matter from 2.6 to over 8% in about 15 years, okay? Animal impact, all, everything we talk about, cover crops, no tillage, I mean, starting to tillage, all that. Four and a half acres out of 500. I, in my lifetime, I will never need to get more land because I've only done well on that many acres. So why, why did a guy like, me back in the day, why was I getting more and more acres? Why well, was making less and less? So I'm running harder because the banks are telling you and the input people are telling you it's a bet it's the best way to go. And you think about what what happens to a community when an operation adds another two thousand acres? Do do three families move into the community? No, they buy more technology and they hire maybe another trucker or something. So we, we can't be sold on bigger is better anymore because it just exposes that we're doing a really crappy job on what we have and we're just spreading it out. We're just spreading out our risk. And it's not doing anything for our family. It's, it's, we're losing that family and we're, and we're not building community and every resource on earth that we're working with is depleted. And I, I know that sounds harsh, but that's exactly what's happening. I agree. And the interesting thing, you know, farm expansion means less people and more automation. And nope. the the kind of commentary is it's it's minimum wage. Like this is what happens when you start raising a minimum wage is when and okay, I'm sure there's a bunch of people that are going to say, well, that's not even correlated. But a hundred years ago, when there really wasn't much of a minimum wage, we had really high farm employment. And, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, I would pay somebody minimum wage to work here. But maybe that's where they need to start out because minimum wage, minimum skills, in my mind, if you want to send me hate mail about that, I don't care. But we we've taken... So when I was, when I was a kid and I got my first job off dad's ranch, working on a neighboring farm, I made $5 an hour. And I think fed minimum wage at the time was under, was under that. And while I was there, it went to like five or five and a quarter and they bumped me to six. Okay, great. I'm 15 years old. Like I didn't expect to be making a million dollars my first year, you know, my, you know, not even quitting high school yet. Okay. I didn't expect that. Was it good money? No. Was it, was it a little bit of spending cash? Yeah, it was great. But now minimum wage is what? $15 or higher in places. And good luck getting somebody to work on your ranch or on your farm for 12 or $15 an hour this year. Good luck. I don't see it happening. So now we're up in the, you know, we got to pay 15, 18, $20 an hour 
to get unskilled labor, unskilled help. Well, when that unskilled labor unit, when you take three quarters of your time to explain to them what needs to be done and make sure they're doing it right, are they really saving you time? That's why we see a lot of automation because the number one cost to like a construction business or most businesses is going to be your people. And that's a variable cost. So the more you can get rid of those variable costs or control the variable costs, obviously you know, that's a business move. If you can replace somebody that used to cost you $200 a day to sit in a tractor and screw things up, if you can replace that with a screen and a GPS receiver, it might cost you a little bit more monthly, but you're going to get more productivity. You're going to have less overlap in your fields, less waste of all your seed, chemical, and all that other stuff, and it'll eventually pay off. I get it. I, I, I totally get why, you know, as we get bigger in farming, we have to be more automated. We have to be, quote, more efficient and do things with less people because our input costs keep going up and we want to raise you know affordable food for everybody i mean there's no sense in raising food if nobody can afford to eat it so i don't know just a couple observations that you know something's got to change with that with that value matrix between automated labor and human labor like we can't keep raising the minimum wage. You know, it can't be $25 an hour for minimum wage and like high minimum wage and cheap food are incompatible. Like, I, I just don't, I don't see how people think that they're correlated. Like, we, well, and I mean, I'm a prime example of minimum wage, minimum skills. I mean, I, I, I can barely, barely function in the day. So, I mean, just, just take a look at me and you'll see that system's not working. So what we, we all need, and I, you know, with the Grace Master Group, we talked a lot about balance. Balance is gone. There has to be a balance. I'm not saying we need every tractor to go away and we want to go back to horses. I'm not, I'm not saying that. We need a balance. We need, we need some common sense isn't so common anymore. Okay. And so we have political people, we have industries, we have everyone else telling us exactly what we should do, how, how we should spend their money, our money with them. Forgetting about the whole people component. So civilizations have risen and fallen because we depleted resources. One thing about it, the U.S. is probably going to go down in history as de- depleting our resources faster than any other civilization. And, and a big part of that comes from the excess that we have in agriculture, the, 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 the bigger the equipment, the you know everything that goes against um, the, the the human connection to the land, okay? And I'm not talking we have to get rid of all that. We just need a balance, okay? So may, maybe that balance is, um, you know, we're, we're, we're going to have this equipment, but we're also going to have this deal over here where we're doing some local food stuff. That's where those people that, that really want to make a difference, yes, whatever that wage is, can fit. I'm a firm believer in we change the soil, we make the soil healthier, we change all of society. Everything gets better. When you touch that soil, it is medicinal and spiritual. Okay? That that is absolutely what we need to exist with some water and sunshine. Okay? So 
all that changes. We get back to, and I'll, and I'll, I tell this to farmers all the time, you guys don't touch the soil anymore. You don't touch the soil. They may get out of the tractor and dig for seed depth. You got to touch that soil. You got to dig it. My, my oldest granddaughter's eight. And we were digging soil, moving cows a couple weekends ago. And, you know, she gets, of course, she's, you know, it's been a bit unfair with, with, with grandpa, you know, always preaching this stuff. But she knows better than most all my neighbors what healthy soil looks like and what dirt looks like. Okay. We have a huge void and we have done a huge disservice to the education side of agriculture because like you and I both agree, we've been told by people we need to do it this way so they can make money off of us. It's time to take control of those reins again, back to why we started the Graze Mass Group, back to why we started, you know, bring that, building that breed of cattle, we have to control something when we have to do something good. And everyone has to at least do a little bit. I'm not telling, telling you that everyone on earth has to change their farming operation 100%. If everyone changed it 10% globally, we'd have this whipped. Yeah. Or if 10% changed, 10% did a 100%, you know. Exactly. However, but they're all, I'm saying if, if they're, if they're starting to do a 10% change, they're going to see the advantages and they're going to go farther, but we've planted that seed of, Hey, there's a different way to do it. And yeah, at the end, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the event we're going to have in, this summer in sewer to bring people together to talk about this, um, you know, speakers and, and farm tours and a community and fellowship and, Man, I'm damn sick and tired of my friends and, and family losing their ass over this stuff, not doing it the right way, being told by people. And when we put the Graze Master Group together, it was they people have to have that resource. They have to have somebody to talk to that's not going to screw them on some input. So that's, I know that was a little harsh. <laughs> well, that, that, okay. You, you can say about whatever you want on here. <laughs> well, I feel comfortable doing that. So thank you. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it just seems like there's a support network and this industry, it, it's literally full of people trying to tell you how to spend your money. You know, you pick, mm-hmm. up, you pick up a copy of a farm progress magazine, you pick up a copy of working ranch, you pick up a copy of Drover's. Like literally, that's all it is. Buy our product to make your ranch better. Our inputs make your crops better. Our inputs make more yields. Yields are what's important. Pounds of gain is what's important. Pounds on the rail. Use our product. More pounds. No matter what the cost. Yeah. No matter what that cost, the pounds, you you, you know this, they, they, they don't care what the cost is to the guys. They've got they're spoon feeding them that information that performance, performance, performance will keep them in business. A huge lie, a huge lie. The savings, the optimizing, everything, everything that we know now that we didn't always know either. Um, it's like this, the, you know, calving in, in January, February to get a 600 pound calf for a feedlot guy to make money off of via an investor that's buying the calves while you're out there 
saving every, trying to save every frozen calf, no sleep, your life sucks. And when we went to May calving, I'm like, what in the hell? Why didn't we do this years and years ago? You know, it's just, and the cost savings, less speed, I mean, the health, everything. You are spot on with what you're saying with how everyone, everyone has really been fed enough propaganda and it, it's it's time that we start changing that. And the, the bad thing is, Dell, I think it's not just propaganda in industry publications, at conferences, at seminars, you know, webinars. I think that's less of a problem than our land grant universities being basically captured by big ag and you know lately the last the last couple of weeks i've been chatting with the gentleman that's uh that's out of colorado state i think boulder and he's he's pretty upset that you know there's professors that he's listening to that are getting paid by jbs and I think that there's, there's like maybe even a building there that JBS built, kind of like University of Illinois. You know, they have uh, the Monsanto Crop Science Center. You know, and I'm, I'm sure that it's like that at, in every state, at every state land grant university that, you know, there'll be, you know, the Monsanto building or, you know, the Bayer Center for Crop Science Excellence. And, okay, I get that. I get that. We need a little bit of money, you know, to fund some research. Where's it going to come from? That's a good question. Well, where does it come from? It comes from the people that have an interest in selling you stuff. There was, I've told this story several, several times. There was a, uh, a meeting I went to for old world blue stem control. If you're not familiar with it, it's a, it's a highly invasive engineered warm season yep. grass, terrible stuff. Anyway, the, uh, all the slides that they put up for over two hours were clear that arsenal was a better solution for chemical control of old world blue stem. It was absolutely crystal clear to me that arsenal was, was a more cost-effective treatment and it was, it was easier to do with better control. That was pretty obvious. Roundup was number two by a fair margin. And wouldn't you know it, the educators and extension from this land-grant university, they never even mentioned the Arsenal as a product. All they did was talk about Roundup and what Roundup could do. I mean, you've got a slide up there and you're showing me results from five different products and you're going to talk about four of them. Not the number one, not the one on top. You're going to talk about the bottom four and you're going to keep doing that for two hours. And then at the end, you're going to tell me that Roundup is what I need to use on this plant. And then you look down at the bottom of the program, sponsored by Dow. Riding for the brand. Like, that, 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 that shouldn't have been a surprise. I mean, so what do we do? I used Arsenal. Does it work to control old world, old world blue stem? You can nuke it to dirt, bare dirt for three years. And then you leave and you'll have old world blues down there. So yep, yep. we'll figure well, out. I mean, that, you're, you're hundred percent right. I mean, that the, those, 
and I'll just get on this briefly. This is we're not on a homestead farm. This one was bought in 1888, but the old Fikes homestead is about a mile south here in 1869. And uh, I tell you that that homestead deal made us all a bunch of dumb dumb people. We we allowed we allowed the government to tell us exactly what to do if we could pay back that interest on that homestead deal. You know, the land grant universities came at that same time. It was all, you know, manifest destiny in the craziest, craziest way. Everything that was natural, we tried to, you know, they told us we need to, to get rid of. And what did that get us to? A very industrialized system that's not sustainable. And, and we really made this country that was a, a beautiful, beautiful spot when you think about how it had to be hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago into something that we can't really make a living off of and you know i always gotta i just gotta have a story to tell you're kansas i'm nebraska my great grandfather was working down on a place that that we had down by pleasantdale followed the old railroad tracks this was uh the same year custer got cleaned out 1876 because that same week a writer come through and told my great great grandfather that you know custer's man had all got killed up there the next, the next week, he saw this this wagon coming and a guy sitting on it. And back then, you stopped and talked to everybody. Everyone visited. That's how you communicated. This guy wasn't looking right or left. He just kept going. My great-grandfather was waving at him. would come over and talk. And he said, this guy just looked horrible. You know, he just, it was, it was a... Uh, you know, he, he was he was definitely in a different state of mind. On the back of the wagon, he had painted, Kansas and Nebraska, I bid you adieu. I may go to hell someday, but never back to you. He was heading back to Illinois. So we've taken a garden through the homestead deal, different rant, but, man, we really screwed it up. You know, and all we're trying to do is, is bring it back. And uh, I, I, I won't go get into my re-homesteading theory, but... Oh, no, get into it. I want to hear it. Well, I think there's a lot of people that would do a lot better job of, of taking care of this than, than a lot of the families that ended up with it. And, and I think I was going down that track of doing uh, just a horrible job. And, you know, if you, if you can't get away from like those, those systems you're talking about with the, you know, with the universities and with the, with the companies that, that seemingly have you in a, a chokehold, um, then you're really not doing a good job. And there's people, when people ask me, who does the, who can you talk to that gets soil health right away? <clears throat> Excuse me. I said, well, uh, an old lady in New York city that has one tomato plant knows more about soil health than most farmers and ranchers. And they're like, well, gosh, I mean, it's, it's, but it's true. She touches it. She lives it. She breathes it. She watches that plant, you know. And secondly, who gets it most or, or better than most farmers and ranchers are kids. So a few years ago, and I'm not bashing farmers and ranchers because I was in this group. And, man, I'm just trying to save everybody now. I, I spoke to a few hundred grade school kids one day. And then that evening I spoke to a, a, a co-op group or something. 
Within five minutes, those grade school kids, everything I was talking about, they were so excited, so pumped up, all shaking their head, yes, on this is so cool, you know, with what we're talking about. I gave the exact same presentation that night to all those farmers and ranchers, and I had maybe two people in the very back, and this was several years ago, not, I mean, way before the regenerative deal was even printed any place. And I had two guys kind of shaking their heads like maybe they're getting it nice. I swear I thought I was going to die when I got in that parking lot that night. And so we have to unlearn and relearn. And maybe the rehomesteading is going to happen on its own. You know, maybe it, maybe it's all going to come around. Everything's cyclical. Everything is constantly done over and over. I know it's a wild theory, but I, I think there's people that know way more than I do that would do a way better job than I do. Well, I'm I'm curious, like without getting into the mechanics and nuts and bolts and politics, what would that look like? I have no idea. A, a political mess, uh, an absolute chaotic system, you know, out out in the country. Um, you know, I, I really think it would have to be a cooperation between existing people that are on the land and the people that really have have learned uh, uh, an old way or or a new way um, in, in, in working together. It, it all goes back to community and, and all that. When we get to anything that we need to redo, we've lost the communication. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was just sitting here kind of thinking a little bit, you know, and, and what you're talking about, it's like reallocation of property. And like, I know it's, a, I know it's a, like a really, really sticky subject. And I've thought about it a lot too. Like, okay, let, let's be real. I'm living on stolen Comanche land and, you know, it, just like there around you in Southeast Nebraska, there's a lot of people that are screwing it up. There's a lot of people that in my opinion are screwing it up, but thanks to the right to farm laws and ag gag laws, nobody can tell anybody what they have a right to do or what they should or shouldn't be doing in agriculture or that they're not quote doing agriculture right. And it, we go down, like if you want to, like if some of that gets rolled back, then we kind of start, then are we going down a really slippery slope, you know, towards less protections for farmers, maybe more transparency, which will be a good thing. But at the end of the day, our country is built on private property and private property rights. Mm -hmm. And that and that's like the bedrock of, of what makes our country work is, is private property. And, you know, I, I can make arguments on both sides of that fence, too. But the, the moral of the story is like. We've got we've got a lot of tenant, you know, landowner tenant situations around and you need to have ownership and management on the same page with the long-term ecological goals for that piece of property in order to make any meaningful change. And, you know, I, I know the situation here is there's a lot of farmers that are farming, you know, 50% or more rented ground. And the people they're renting ground from are absentee landowners that, you know, maybe this 120 acres is all they have of the original family homestead from 1885. And mm -hmm. there's 15 heirs that are all all have their finger in the pie. And as yeah. long as they all get a little check every year, 
they don't care what that guy does, but they're, you know, they're dependent on that rent check. Or they, you know, are unwilling to pay for the infrastructure to put a fence around it and put a water well on it so it could support cattle. So to some extent, you know, we, we've got fragmentation of private property rights that, you know, disconnect land from water, disconnect land from access. But how do you start unwinding those things in a fair and equitable way to the people that are already participating in the system? Mm -hmm. And that's where things get really, really sticky because a government man shows up and says, hey, Mr. Fike, we're going to take we're going to take this 200 acres. We're going to take it away from you and we're going to give it to somebody from Raleigh, North Carolina that wants to homestead out here. Like that'll go over. I mean. I'm not even going to say go over like a lead balloon because that, that won't even fly. I no, mean, no. And they could do the same thing to, to, to our friend Jared out in, out in Nevada, Jared, we're going to take 2000 acres away from you. We're going to give it to this guy from, from Florida because he wants to ranch in Nevada. I, that's, I think that's go ahead. why, why when I talk in extremes like that, I want to get attention I, I want people to start understanding what we have to do. And, you know, one of the things, you know, we were doing that starting the Graze Master Group, you know, our catchphrase or slogan is balancing nature and profitability. It can be done. So nature doesn't really understand ownership or boundaries or anything like that. But the modern world does back to the private, you know, ownership rights that built this country. And yes, we're all on land that, that some, you know, we've taken from somebody else that someone else will take from us someday. We know that. That's just the way it all goes. But when we can ba balance that nature and profitability, and, and most people will say that can't be done, you and I know it can. And that's the hope. So, you know, you can throw out all this crazy stuff, get their attention, and then let's say, okay, this can be done any place. You know, you were talking on the on the Graze Master cattle. Why did we do it? Um, why did we build that? Well, we wanted something that works here, but you know, they can tweak that any place on earth. You know, so we have to have things that are balanced with nature. They have to make money, we have to stay in business. But by us staying in business, it buys us time to continue to do things in a better way, in a more you know, the word regenerative has been so prostituted out. I don't even hardly use it much anymore. It, it's more, let's get back to responsible agriculture, responsible communities, responsible actions. You know, um, we are responsible for doing this. And, you know, it, it's not politics. It's not religion. It's, it's, it's what's in our heart. And it's the, you know, you're only as smart as the smartest person you talk to talk to people, read about things. Don't just read about agriculture and what the, what's some crazy, you know, when the plow was invented or something, you know, read about everything that you can because it all connects to the resources that we've really done a, a really poor job with and we can do better. I know we can do better. I think we can all do better, but the question is, what does better look like? And is there an 
end of that road that we're looking for? It never ends. We'll never get to the back to the garden. We'll never, you know, where where nothing, no plants were named, where there was weeds most likely within that garden. You know, the best cover crop on earth is weeds. And everyone, I get so much crap from people when I say that, you know, God doesn't like a nudist colony. So the weeds come and bear soil. And, you know, I think that's, I think that's a big part of why I love talking to people about it and trying to do it, trying, I'm just saying, trying to do it on my place, trying to do it better is because it's a rush. I know that I'll never have the best soil. I'll, I, even though I've said this a lot, I only want, had two goals. I wanted the best soil on earth and the most accountable cow herd. I say that half joking, but you got to have goals. You got to write them down. And if you don't write those goals down, you'll forget about them. You write those goals down. And so every day when you put your boots on or every day you pour your coffee cup, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta look at that and say, am I on the right track? Am I still trying to do that? It, it, it's, it's gotta be in your heart. It's gotta be a motivation. But um, if we don't balance it and if we don't think just a little crazy, think about nature, nature's crazy. Nature is so crazy cool and the power it has. Nature is always going to regain itself in one way, shape, or form over the dumbest animal on earth, i.e. humans. Um, it's always going to take the shape that it's supposed to or, or was meant to be or the way it was started. It's education. If we, if we don't, and I'm not talking education, setting everybody in a classroom, it's you know, it's talking to just everybody. We used to talk to everybody. And that's why, you know, a deal like this, what you're doing, and Carrie does it on, on our side with the Underdog Egg podcast. It's, it's so important because what if this gets to one person that hasn't thought about this or hasn't had the courage or doesn't know the resources or who to call, what if it gets to them and it makes a difference? And then that person gets to another person. It's one at a time. It's one farm, one ranch, one family, one community at a time. Anything bigger than that, it's too grandiose. I think we're also maybe to some extent saving one life at a time too. Amen. You know, the, the, the two groups that have the highest suicide rates and have, several years military veterans and farmers and ranchers yep. like if they're not one and two they're both in the top five yep and it, it's it's a crisis that nobody's talking about it's and it's something based on a lot of lack of purpose you know when you when you think about it we this is all so crazy that no one feels place anymore no one feels purpose no one feels like they can make a difference and that's why you know, that, that soil component healthy soil it's a healer it is a healer and we've had tons of veterans groups out here and we we honor a veteran every year at our, our graze master event and you know world war ii vets were different than i'm no expert in this you know, gosh you're 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 firsthand with it but 
they all had a little bit different purpose coming back to that farm or ranch or even that small business in town that the parents had, the grocery store, the tire shop, whatever. We, we got to start every day with purpose for people, you know, and if, if they don't have a purpose or that, that feeling, that's, that's when all these statistics get blown out of the water. We're better than that. As Americans, we are better than that. We need to really get our crap together. Some of that kind of maybe circles back to the Stockholm syndrome and total capture of our institutions. It's like, and and we kind of even alluded to it earlier today or earlier in a conversation. Like, it's so hard to fight against something that you've been taught your whole life. You know, if you've got 99 voices telling you things are this way and there's one guy over at the fringe going, no, no, maybe maybe things are a little bit different. You know, look, look, we're that one guy. Like we are that one very quiet dissenting voice to a lot of agriculture. And the reason it's hard to accept is, yeah, maybe they are bought in and captured by Stockholm syndrome, but they're, they're captured by a system that has beat them and brainwashed them for 10, 20 or 30, 40 years. I mean, and maybe it starts, maybe it starts in public school, but there's definitely a lot of it in anything having to do with agricultural education in a land-grant university. Like from the time you start taking those courses, you're going to be brainwashed. If you grow up on the family farm and there's usually a seed company, a chemical company, or the machinery company dealer in the driveway every week, that's the paradigm you're going to grow up with. And that's what's going to make sense when you go to land-grant university and they're all telling you about the high input you know, high input systems that generate super high yields. Yeah. But at what cost, you know, um, like national corn, corn yield record is what 600 bushels now. And I don't think that, I don't think that crop made money for all the fertilizer that he had to put on water. He had to pump on it. Um, there's a guy that, that I hope we both know Russell Hedrick out in North Carolina yeah. won the dry land corn yield award like 460 some bushels and he's about as low input as they get. He's kind of a no-tiller and he does a lot of biologicals. So the argument that you've got to put, you know, all the seed companies inputs on to make it grow and make it, you know, a really good crop. He's, he's really fighting against that fallacy. And, you know, it, it's like you have to buy into somebody's whole system. You buy into our corn. well, We'll also sell you soybeans and well, good luck. Good news because the same shit you can spray on your corn. Now you can spray on your soybeans and the drift won't kill anything. Yay. Science. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Yay for science. Yep. So you've got, cool. you've got guys that are just trapped in this system and that's all they've heard their whole life. It's all they've ever seen and all they've ever known. And then I got a guy like you and me coming up and being like, you ever think about maybe planting that to grass? and running cows on it and they look at us like we're nuts nope nope well and you know in a lot of ways people have to unless unless they really have the idea and the in the, the the backing to change a lot of the soils on life support 
you know, it has to have all that stuff dumped to it to even raise a crop. So, you know, back to the production, the, you know, the, the guy that's raising the, the, the biggest weaning weight steer and the guy that's raising the biggest corn yield at what cost, not just financial costs, but environmentally, what did that cost? You know, and, and I, I think the old saying on the corn deal is every corn or, you know, you, you have the, the potential to make 1500 bushel per acre, but every day, because of things in the environment and things you're doing, you'd start to lose yield. So when a corn farmer hears that they should be raising 1500 bushel per acre, well, that, I mean, the government likes that, you know, the government wants these guys to keep going broke, raising a big corn or soybean crop because they make money off of trading it. And the, and the people sitting in USDA and all those places, and this, this is a crazy story. I, I had the opportunity to go to DC years ago in, in a job and it was going to pay, I believe, $90,000 a year. Um, life, basically, living expense in Georgetown was about $90,000 a year. And they told me how I would come out of there making so much money. And I said, I don't understand this. Um, you know, if I'm only getting this, it's costing me this. And they're like, oh, there's you'll be taken care of, you'll be taken care of. And you really wonder when you see all these people that have had these jobs and how they come home as multimillionaires, you know, you know the system screwed up. The system is out to beat the guy up right from the day when we signed those, those, that homesteading paper that we'll pay that interest back in five years or whatever. They've had us under their thumb. You know, like Hitler, I said, make the lie big enough and tell it often enough they'll believe it. That's where we're at. We're just being told big lies over and over. And hey, this country was built on a bunch of patriots, you know, doing things, eh, something's wrong, but still, still very um, gu guided by the right thing of, you know, hey, we can do this on our own. We don't need help. We don't need government. We, we don't need all this. I'm not saying that we need to change that whole deal, but this country will not stand for this much longer. And, and especially on the ag side, you know, enough is enough. I agree. I also think that we have maybe a, uh, maybe, we're, maybe it's difficult for us out here in rural America to see the big picture. I mean, there's, there's what, 340 million Americans allegedly, we have the most popular president in history that got the more popular votes than anybody else. 83 million people. You know, you're, you and me are just two people. I've had, uh, I think we're about 115, 118 episodes on the podcast. Had some repeat guests. So let's just call it. I've, I've met a hundred people over the course of this podcast. I know how many people listen to it. And it's not anywhere close to 340 million. It's not even like, it's not even a meaningful fraction of that number. And like to change the course of the ship, it'll take a lot less people than 50%, like 3%, I think is about what it'd take. But even to get 
to 3% market penetration when there's 340 million people. It's a big ask. And it doesn't seem like that there's any voices that are trying to, any voices that are saying the things we're saying with a lot of reach. I mean, yeah, Will Harris was fantastic on Joe Rogan. Joel Salatin has been fantastic on Joe Rogan. His audience is enormous. And that's, I mean, enormous compared to mine. But to be honest, he still, like, he has the size of an audience that it takes to actually move the needle, move public opinion. You know, over time, he can do it. But we're such a long ways away from, from being able to change things by hearts and minds, I guess is what I'm saying. And I hate government control and I'm not advocating for more, but I'm wondering, I'm really starting to wondering like where possibly a small tweak in government policy can create a large change in society over a long period. Like, you know, Talking about the re, you know, re-homesteading act, different homesteading act. Um, previous guest and I talked about it a uh, little. Talked about it two episodes ago with the Taylor Grazing Act. So, just like the homesteading act, kind of in the Midwest, you know, more where you are was where the homesteading act was. It was 160 acres. Well, by the time they got out to to where Jared is out in the Elko, Nevada, they realized that 160 acres just ain't going to quite cut it. So the Taylor Grazing Act made that more like 2,000 acres. So there's there's like 600 and some million acres that the federal government owns in the West. And I've heard people be like, well, we'll just open that up for settlement. We'll just open that up for homesteading. Well, no, because that's already been tried and nobody wanted it in the beginning. That's why nobody's there and it's still owned by the federal government. Like, Elko, Nevada, it's okay. Las Vegas, it's okay. But there's not a whole lot in between, and they're kind of on opposite ends of the state. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's Nevada's not really a great place to go ranch or farm because there's no water. And that's land values, land values in my mind and productivity are tied to how much water you're going to get, how much humidity you have over the course of the year. And have become acutely aware of that over the last three years because it really hasn't rained very much. Like, you don't have to go very far east before you start picking up rain. Yep. But going west, it just gets drier and drier and drier. So the answer in my mind is not homesteading the 600 and some million acres that the federal government has in the west. And I think there's a lot of lot of land in the West where I am and west of you that maybe should never been settled the way it was because access to resources, you know, namely water and how much area it takes to grow enough forage to raise a cow. Because as you go, you know, the farther west you go and the drier it gets, the more acres you need for cows. And, you know, of course, then there's the correlation between how many labor unit, you know, how many cows can one labor unit take care of? All right, we're getting, we're getting way off in the weeds. 
Tell me. I understand. Um, tell me about the Gray's Master breed. Tell me about Gray's Master cattle. I I don't know much about them, so give me give me some education. Well, I, I we spent about thirty plus years um, kind of experimenting with different combinations of cattle. So my my father Kenneth Fike um, and my grandfather Adolf they were Hereford people. We had registered Herefords. Um, my dad sold bulls for Pioneer beef cattle back in the day when Pioneer Seed had their cow herd in the early 70s. So a lot of the great, and a lot of a lot of people don't even know that Pioneer was in the cattle business, but a lot, you know, they had money behind them. They, they bought the best bulls of a lot of different breeds. They were, you know, well on their way to making a lot of headway in the beef industry and the stockholders decided that it was taking too long, cows take too long, they pulled the trigger, they dispersed. But in that time, you know, I really, I was a, a, just a very young boy and I got to, I got to travel all over with my father who, who was very hell bent on, you had to get away from home. You had to get to other States and see what they were doing agriculture wise to know what to do at home. Your, your backyard was too small and you, there wasn't enough experts. So, you know, I, I, I got to see him um, really start to appreciate uh, you know, the hybrid cattle, the composite cattle. And he was actually one of the first guys in our area to sell hybrid corn through Garston Thomas, Roswell Garst industry leader. And the corn deal had, um, had enticed my father to, to sell hybrid corn in this area that, you know, really there was a little west of us, they were selling it. Um, so that's kind of started the whole deal, Garston Thomas to the Pioneer deal. Um, then my dad got to see a lot of those benefits of the, the composite and hybrids, which I picked up quickly. Um, even though we were raising Herefords, we were always doing something on the side. We, we basically took our, our registered Hereford herd that was fairly low input and we rolled them in as, you know, kind of that village cow. Um, you know, if you're going to build a composite in a, in a, in a far off land, don't remove the cow that's acclimated and try something completely new. Start with a village cow and build from there. So, you know, the Hereford was our village cow in, in all this stuff. And, oh my gosh, we tried so many different, different breed combinations and things like that, that, you know, you had some success, but it just wasn't exactly what we were doing. And my father died 11 years ago and, and he was loving what we were doing. Um, we hadn't trademarked it at that point yet, but he loved that combination because he said, you know, there's going to be a time and the time was really there already that those cows are going to have to take care of themselves. And my dad come out of a uh, kind of an era when he had been sold a lot of BS too, that you had to, had to feed silage and you had to do all this and you had to, these cows had to look this certain way and they had a calf in January, February to get that optimum calf for somebody else to make money off of. And he's like, they're going to have to take care of themselves, which, which they really were at that point already. We'd start taking so many of the crutches away. And so where we ended up now, and this is, this is a kind of a fluid deal too, is the Grace Masters, a solid red, hundred uh, percent forage based animal, not as small as, as what, um, some of the cattle out there because we can still 
tend to have some pretty rough um, springs as far as, and I wish it would be this way this year, as far as mud and things like that. So we stayed away from the too small, too fragile type type cow. Um, you know, we're shooting for, you know, cow size now to be about 1,050 to 1,075 pounds. And, but the, the, the Grays Master where we're at today is Hereford Red Angus Semitol Obrac. And the Obrac breed is a French uh, uh, continental, kind of a triple purpose breed, meat, milk, and draft back in the day. Came out of the same region as the Solaire did in France. And uh, we're, we're, we're moving uh, some of that out with uh, some South Pole in there too, which is another composite. Um, but, you know, no, no matter what, we have in it um for the breeds we really kind of stick with that red angus hereford uh base you know that that red angus hereford f1 is pretty damn hard to beat on its own um and of course in, in a composite breeding situation you want each breed that you have in there to complement each other but they each have to do something different so it'd make no no sense for me to put a charlet and a, a semitol in there because I'm, I'm going for for horsepower, you know, um, with a breed like, you know, the Semitol, I just, I just need a little size, a little gas, you know, and, and everything that we, we, we choose in that are all very forage efficient lines of whatever breed we use. I'm a firm believer that you can't build the perfect beast with, with, a, with a straight bred animal. You, you leave too much on the table. So the longevity and the heterosis that you get with any crossbred cow, not just the Grace Master, you, you have a cow that's tougher. She's probably more efficient. She's going to last longer. Your replacement costs are going to be less. You have to think about all the things that, you know, that we're leaving on the table in the, in the beef industry back to kind of the propaganda in, in the advertising and promotion. Um, you know, even even though a lot of these black cows probably aren't too straight Angus anymore, but uh, you got too big, you know, these cattle got too big as we chased that feedlot deal. And when you get, when you want that 1600 pound steer, well, I guarantee you that that heifer mate to that steer is going to be a pretty big old mama trying to walk around and she's going to need groceries. She's going to need extra care. You're going to have to feed her calf. Um, creek feed you're going to have to do all this stuff everything that i just i i and we come out of the kind of the the club calf deal too for a little while and things like that we dabbled in a lot of stuff like that sold a lot of bulls and on the hereford side and it just didn't it, it, it back to it didn't make sense it wasn't complete enough or balanced enough you know in a straight bread deal it just didn't make sense not to crossbreed and we're we're how many years into you know the crossbreeding deal in different species in this country and we're still kind of really lagging behind in the beef industry and i blame a lot of that on old breed society pressure yet and and um perception it's still bragging rights to go talk at the coffee shop about you wean the biggest heaviest you know weaning weight steer it's sold for this much at the sale barn you spent $15,000 more than you needed to on each one of the straight bread bulls you bought. Um, 
You well, just, sir, I don't go to those coffee shops because when I talk about my 650 pound cows weaning a 500 pound calf, I have a ten. They laugh at me and look at me funny. So, yeah, they couldn't understand just don't go that. to those places anymore. You you, you got to be careful if you do stop there because they'll suck the intelligence right out of your head. So it, it's a it's a dicey place to be. And so you understand that you know the benefits of a, a crossbred animal in a very natural situation, you know, or a an animal that's that's acclimated and every every paddock of grass is different just like every farm field is different and so we really have to find what works for your operation and that's what we did with this we just want something to work for ours yes we can build that for someone else but our meat business kind of took um, our chance of selling much seed stock away because it became you know, pretty successful and, and we're blessed with that. So I, I, I love the crossbred cow. I love the composite theory, you know, back on the farming side, those guys, they, they would not plant a corn that wasn't a hybrid. You know, they wouldn't just not do that. And yet we still struggle with that on the cattle side. It's, it's still a romance, you know, but I think there's a breed association that I won't name. That's got a certified program that's been extremely that's been an extremely successful marketing campaign for the lower yep. know, 30 years now almost oh since the 80s well that's like 30 years oh that's 40 yep. Yep. holy crap that's, 40. That's, that's like 40 years wow i remember when the first ads come out i, I remember when they started start pushing that when i was you know in high school i remember before the world turned I remember before all the cattle turned black. I remember there used to be a lot of red cattle, a lot of white cattle, a lot of smoke colored cattle. You know, just just a lot of oddballs. There's not a lot of uniformity as far as color went in the cow herds. And then um, you know, that was that was kind of all through the nineties for me down here. And then I went to I went to Virginia, serving the military for like almost nine years, eight and a half years, and I came back and all the cows are black. Like literally the world is full of black cows and that's all anybody wants to talk about is black cows around here. And granted that was, uh, be 16, almost 17 years ago now. And you know, th there's some guys that are running some red Angus. There's, uh, one of the best Hereford outfits around is, is just like 35 miles West of me. They've always been Herefords, but, um, yeah, there's, there's, we're starting to see a lot more, a lot of colors start to creep back in and people getting away from the mainline Angus. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, uh, my podcast fans, they've, they've, you know, they've been hearing me talk all winter about, you know, I, I do have a group of custom graze cows, a group of customer cattle on the ranch and they're, they're just mixed commercial. I mean, there's everything in there from probably straight bred Angus to, you know, to your typical, Angus Hereford Brocklefish Cross to some full blood Herefords. There's a Jersey cross in there. There's a Tiger Stripe F1, which is uh uh crap. Those long eared things. Oh, like a Brahma type deal? One of those, one of those in a Hereford. Um some I get I get the I get names mixed up. Brahma, Naguni, Nalori, whatever. It's, it's like both syndicus. It's like both syndicus and a Hereford. Start to see some of those. Um and you know, I 
rode through those with the client yesterday. And out of the solid black ones, there's maybe one that really looks good. The Hereford crosses look a little bit better. The Herefords look pretty good. That Tiger Stripe Brahma Hereford, she's probably one of the better looking ones. And then that Jersey cross, well, she's a Jersey cross, so she's always going right. to look thin, but, you know, she still looks good. Yep, yep. Um, it, it just seems like, it seems like the red cattle and any of the hybrid cattle get by better on much less or, or will thrive on just slightly less quality than the black cattle were. And like my personal feeling is we've just, you know, Angus got so popular. Black Angus got so popular. That's what everybody with five head wanted. And then you get these guys that are like, well, I can only have five head. We got to make the most money off of them as possible. So we're going to get in the registered seed stock business. And then we end up with, you know, bad feet and structural defects. And anyway, so I, I just think that there's, I think that we went a lot of the wrong directions and a lot of wrong ways with Angus and pushing the big feedlot size. Like you said, you know, if you want a 1600, if you want to finish a 1600 pound steer, that doesn't come from a thousand pound cow. I mean, mm -hmm. your cows have to be bigger. You get over a 1200 pound cow, her efficiency goes way down after 1200 pounds. She's going to eat you out of house and home. She's going to need an awful lot of protein to get through the winter, which you know, as we've seen in the last 12 months, protein got really expensive mm -hmm. really fast. And, you know, I've been trying since I bought, bought this herd three years ago, I've been pushing for less and less inputs, more days on pasture, less inputs. The fact that it hasn't rained for almost th three years kind of hurts. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. it's... Mm -hmm. It's difficult to grow cool season grass in the winter when you have no moisture to do so. Um, yep. which means you got to haul a lot more protein. So, I mean, it is what it is. So one thing that really, that always screws up breeds or screws up anything is when people go after a single trait selection. So, you know, I, I am a firm believer when they start chasing ribeye size and some of these breeds, they made these cattle too big, you know, and, and, they didn't care that the rancher was going broke. They just needed, you know, that big ribeye to sell to somebody for, you know, 75 or a hundred dollars at a steakhouse. So, you know, we, we lost all common sense, you know, with all that. And, and I, I, I have some guys say, well, you know, you're a regenerative guy. Your cattle are supposed to be low input. You still put up hay. And I'm like, yeah, damn right. And I said, we buy hay too. And they're like, well, so your cattle need that. I said, well, yeah, there's times they need it. But I said, we always count 60% of that bale going to the soil and 40% to the cows. In my lifetime, if I live another 50 years, which I won't, I will not have covered every, what I call rescue area on our farm with with a bale either you know biocarpeting or or bale grazing you know some old cow tracks or a rough whatever where there's nothing growing you know that 
the manure urine, the urine, the tromping, what's left of that, that bale that they don't eat, and then the translocation of seeds, it, that, that bale of hay starts, even at today's price, in a way starts looking affordable or even cheap because if, if you went, and we haven't seeded in our pasture program trying to get rid of brome, we haven't bought any warm season grass seed ever. We translocate seed in via, you know, biocarpeting um, and also, you know, the intensive grazing of, of that hoof action. I'm a firm believer that every seed is still in the soil. Nothing is a, a, a extinct and we bring it back that way. So, you know, when, when you start using what you have, making the animals do well on what you have, not not spoiling them, not doing anything. I think this year, it might be a little higher. I, I, it's probably around $9 a cow for protein and mineral, what we've spent since last fall. Um, we use some of our own alfalfa. We use, you know, some, some other stuff that we get, you know, certainly some protein value out of, but you know, the back in the day, we, we would buy, of course we had a few more cows. We would buy tubs and tubs and mineral and mineral. When you get that soil, right. When you, when you get those forages, um, not perfect, but more balanced, even in a stockpiled situation of old standing grass that, and we were shorter this year because we we're drier too. You know, they go in that old stockpile brome and, and those blue stems and stuff like that. They're not licking a tub. They're not hardly licking any mineral. They'll, they'll lick some salt. People are blown away. They're like, how do you get your cows to do that? Well, the ones that didn't want to do that aren't here anymore. So um, that was pretty easy. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, you, you can control your own destiny, but everyone's so used to crutches, uh, you know, if it's on the farm side, if it's on the cow side, they're used to, they're so brainwashed or whatever that you have to spend a lot of money and you don't. Because you can feed condition and fertility into anything. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. So I just want other people, you know, I want to help these other people, you know, that, Hey, you, you don't have to work for those cows, making make them enjoyable. And no, you're not going to have the 650 or 800 pound weaning weight steer. You're not, that, that's, you know, you're going to have some good calves. You're going to have low input calves. You're going to have quality, healthier cattle. And there's markets for those every place. Yep, for sure. For sure. Uh, so that that was the Graze Master, the whole deal that you know went into the Graze Master group idea then. That um, you know, if we can do that with cattle, we can do that with inputs and communities and things like that. So it's just balance and, and, and connectivity with the people that you know that we used to call neighbors. neighbors and community just it seems like that's just not what it was even 20 years ago nope so look, tell me about the graze master group what kind of what I, I don't know a whole lot about it so what 
what could I expect? Well, I guess just tell me about it and tell me about so, what you do. So it, it's really got a lot of things, you know, like I said, Carrie Hofstra and I, we started it. We've got some, some good people uh, in like great people involved. You can go to gracemastergroup.com, read up on all the people involved, um, you know, credible people, um, Ward Laboratories, Agoro, Agoro Carbon Alliance are involved. Um, we've got financial people that will help, um, you know, Farm Ranch Succession, things like that. We just signed up with the one of the largest hemp growers in the country because we feel like that's we, we love the hemp for building soil. We love love all that. We think it's going to be a, a, a good value. We've got a couple gals on the group. One is a uh, basically like a community building type person. The other person is a, uh, a human health person. Uh, we've, we've just got so many different people in there. We've got cattle experts. Um, so what we can do is we can go out and we can consult for you. We can communicate for you. We can build a, a legacy plan. We can, um, we can get you cheaper inputs. Uh, Nate Belcher with Hybrid 85 Corn, every bag's $85. He cut out the middleman. He started his own business. He does the same thing with his cover crops and alternative nutrients. So that's our little spot there where we do have some things that people can buy, but it's all affordable. It's all common sense. And it all goes back to when we started there, everyone told us we should do things different, but we had no one to talk to, to know what to do different or where to find these products. And so this, the products and services of what we're doing there morphed into last year. We had a Grace Master event in Sydney, Nebraska. This year we're going to have one June 28th and 29th in Seward, Nebraska, in southeast Nebraska, my home county, where all the fight cattle company started. Um, Jason Mock from Indiana is going to talk about relay cropping and animal impact. Uh, we got farm tours on the 28th at my place and Brian Burhell, um, another regenerative guy that actually started me in this years ago. Um, 29th is all day speakers, tons of food, tons of fellowship. Just it's a beautiful deal. You can go to gracemastergroup.com and learn more, but it's an exciting endeavor. It's an endeavor that makes me feel good that we're actually helping people. Awesome. I'll make sure I have a, I'll make sure I have some links to your webpage and to that event. Yes. I'll make sure I get those in the show notes. Um, what do we forget today? Well, we covered everything from politics to, um, well, we, we did a, a beautifully politically correct job of bashing things, I feel. Um, <laughs> we, we, I think we really did a good job there and, uh, and, and, and let people make their own decisions on things. Um, I, I, think, I think this was a really good, good talk. I knew it would be. I knew we were on the same page on a lot of this. We, we, have, to, we have to take the reins back. And, uh, and people don't know how to do that on their own anymore. And they have to look, um, they have to reinvent themselves, maybe dig deep and, and, uh, listen to crazy guys like us that, that can tell them, you know, people are looking for a go ahead. I've said this a lot. I said, I'm nothing more than a, you know, than a, um, life coach for agriculture because people just want the go ahead. They want to know if they, could do it. I I get 
I get calls often from people that are just that want to run a cons concept by me. Like, hey, I just need your opinion on something and they'll talk about, you know, and think about doing this, this, and this with my cows. And I think that it's just people want a little bit of backup. They want a little bit of validation that they're not completely crazy. And nope. you know that look, I'll be honest, there's been a lot of stuff that I've done in the last 10 years out here on this ranch where I thought I was completely crazy. And we weren't near as connected by social media 10 years ago as we are today. Sure. Like that didn't even really start. I mean, eight years ago, maybe, you know, around 2016 yeah. is when that is when it kind of dawned on me, how connected we all were on social media and how to, and how to start tapping into that network. But it, it's difficult to get any kind of validation or any kind of, any kind of feedback on a new crazy idea, unless it's been in that narrow silo where, you know, of research from the land grant university or what you get from extension or NRCS. Like if, if you were tried to find information outside of that silo, even just seven, eight years ago, it was very, very difficult to get a hold of. I mean, you've got YouTube university with Greg Judy's been on there forever. You got guys like Joel Salatin who've been writing books since the beginning of time, but man, just, just in the last especially in the last three years, like the power of social media in the last three years has allowed so many of us to connect and share stories and share information that it actually does start to give me some hope about the near future of agriculture. Well, it's, it's gotten easier to get that communication out. But one thing that you and I can both do, we can't tell people what to do, but we can tell them what not to do. So we know there's things that we tried that absolutely did not work. And we can save them a whole bunch of time and money and, and mistakes. You know, when people are like, they'll call me and say, well, what about this, this, or this? I'm like, don't know. But here's what I did in that deal, and it didn't work. Or this is what I did, and it did work. But the mistakes are, are better uh, for that. Um, that learning curve and that education and, and, and really money savings, you know, tell them the mistakes we've made, you know, because then it, then we were not some crazy regenerative hoodlums out there. We're dudes that are making mistakes because, you know, a lot of these regenerative people and I, you know, I'm not going to bash them. It's, it's become kind of a hipster deal back when I was doing it. It was just kind of a cool deal, but it's, um, you know, they, they, they tend to come across as we do everything right. This is 100% the way it is. You, there's no variation. You have to do it this way. So just like you in the drought situation, just like us in the drought situation, we went from this super plan to less of a plan and survival. It happens. You have to adapt. That's what's so cool about what we're doing. It's not a system. It's not we don't have to plant corn the first week in April. If if the cows were great on this paddock, we're going to leave them there three days longer. There's not a plan, something that we have to stick to. Yes, there's a plan, but it's not a plan based on someone else's prosperity. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. 
I need to get out of here. Okay. So, anything you need to end with? Go to grazemastergroup.com, see what we're doing. We'd love to have you follow. All right. I'll make sure we have links, uh, links there in the show notes. All right. Thank you so much. Well, Mr. Delphike, it's been an absolute pleasure this morning. And uh, I thank you for your time. And for those of you out there in podcast land, go get out there and have a good week. Thanks so much.